0: Uh, but we are back into our Bible study now, Hebrews chapter number 8. I'm going to give you a quick, uh, just what the theme is, just a, uh, an overall summary of what Hebrews chapter number 8 is about. And the main focus is about the new covenant and how it is a better covenant. And really when we were in Hebrews chapter number 7, to kind of, uh, you know, back up a little bit, remind you of what the overall context does is Of this particular part of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter number seven began with Melchizedek. And what it was doing was it was slowly revealing the true identity of Melchizedek as Jesus, who is, (coughs) excuse me, the high priest. Then it went into the fact that Jesus is the high priest of the new covenant and that he is not a priest or the high priest of the old covenant or of the law, right? And it actually was transitioning at the end of Hebrews chapter number 7 into the fact that there is a new covenant that is replacing the old covenant. A uh, very famous verse that probably everyone here is uh, familiar with, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter number 7 is that there is made also a change of the law. Or there also is made, you know, there is by necessity a change also of the law, is how it's worded. So. Uh, Hebrews chapter number seven touches on the fact that how there is a new covenant, and that's really what Hebrews chapter number eight is about. That's what we're going to be discussing. It's a smaller chapter, but there is some good little nuggets here. I want you to look with me at Hebrews chapter eight, verse number one. The Bible says, "Now the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. Now sum there just means conclusion. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty." in the heavens. Of course, chapter seven was about Jesus, our high priest. Now, it's going to tell us what he means by such. He's going to describe that to us. Look at verse number 2. A minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched and not man. Now, here in uh, verse number 2, of course, it mentions him being the minister. And that is because the high priest, that's what his job was, was to minister in the sanctuary and to minister in the tabernacle. Now, in the... uh, the new covenant, it's not obviously the earthly tabernacle or the earthly sanctuary. Turn over to Hebrews chapter number 9. <clears throat> Hebrews chapter number 9, look at verse number 1. Then verily the first covenant, that's the old covenant, the Old Testament, the law, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary so notice that the difference between these two covenant or i'm sorry these two sanctuaries or these two tabernacles is that the one with the old covenant the law is the worldly or is the earthly sanctuary the earthly uh tabernacle so verse number two it tells us a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the lord pitched and not man. I want you also to notice that that is the true tabernacle. So what is the tabernacle? What does that mean that he's he referring to the tabernacle of the Old Covenant? Is that the true tabernacle? No, it's not. So he's contrasting it too, saying this is the true, this is the real one. This is the real tabernacle, the true tabernacle. And then he goes on to say which the Lord pitched, and not man. Of course, contrasting the Old Covenant tabernacle. Who set that up? Well, that was the Levite's job the Levites would pitch it. And they, you know, they would disassemble it and then they would reassemble the tabernacle of the Old Testament. Now this one says, about this ta- uh, tabernacle and sanctuary, it says that the Lord pitched it, that the Lord set it up. Go to uh, Revelation chapter number 21. Revelation chapter number 21 <coughs> verse number 3 makes a reference to this here in Revelation chapter number 21 verse number 3. <coughs> The Bible says this, and I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men and he will dwell with them and they shall be his people and God himself shall be with them and be their God. So notice that right here is the fulfillment. And of course, this is when you know, New Jerusalem comes down, is on this earth, and it tells you that the tabernacle of God is with men. It's coming out of heaven and it's coming down to the earth. So the true tabernacle, the real tabernacle, the one that the Lord pitched, that is in heaven right now. Look at verse number four. The Bible goes on. I'm sorry, verse number three in Hebrews chapter number eight. Verse number three, it says, for every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man have somewhat also to offer. Verse four, for if he were on earth, he should not be a priest. Seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to to the law all that's pretty self-explanatory look at verse number 5 verse number 5 says who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things as Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle for see saith he that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount <coughs> So right here it references the passage where the Lord, when he's giving the instructions, he's given all the, uh, you know, the admonitions to Moses on how to assemble, how to build. You know, it goes over the candlesticks, just every single aspect, every single detail about how the, the sanctuary and the tabernacle is going to work, right? How it's supposed to look, how everything is to be fashioned. And the Bible tells us right here that the whole purpose of that was to be an example. It was to look like. The true, it says there in verse number 5, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. So it was just to picture what was in heaven. Now I want you to go to Exodus chapter number 25. Exodus chapter number 25. and This is actually where this is quoted from. Exodus chapter number 25, the very end of the chapter. I believe it's the, like the second ver- to last verse or, or last verse. <clears throat> it is the last verse itself. So look at... Uh, Exodus chapter number 25, look at verse number 40. After he's done giving the details about the specific aspect of the tabernacle, he says this. And look that thou make them after their pattern which was showed thee in the the mount. So that is actually what's being quoted when you look there in Hebrews chapter number 8 verse number 5. You notice the word see and look. Obviously those two words we would know are interchangeable and these verses use those two words interchangeable. But what's interesting about this is that the Bible actually tells you that God didn't just show him a vision or God didn't just show him a picture of this but he actually showed him into heaven and he was able to see what the tabernacle actually looked like like in heaven. God when he went up, when Moses went up you know, into the mount, the Lord showed Moses into heaven you know, and what it actually looked like so he was able to look at it and actually see it. You know, obviously you know, how glorious and what a great blessing that is to be able to view what heaven looks like and, the, and the, uh, the heavenly or divine sanctuary. Now one thing that I'd like to bring up here at this point with verse number five is <clears throat> there's a theory out there, you may or may not have encountered this, I've heard a couple of people talk about this, that there is no real tabernacle in heaven, that there is no real altar, there, there is no real sanctuary, there's not a real temple, and what they believe, and these are people that will kind of hyper-spiritualize everything, and I don't know if you've you know, spoken to people like this or listened or heard people you know, talk about this before, but they believe that everything is just figurative, that every single aspect <coughs> of you know, uh, what was on earth when it says that it served of an example of the heavenly things, that it just pictured, you know, spiritual things that are in heaven and that there's not a literal tabernacle. And what they'll do is they'll point to things that are symbolic, but then they'll ignore other aspects that actually do do teach that there is a literal, you know, uh, sanctuary or a literal tabernacle in heaven. What they'll point to, um, you know, about like, uh, I'll give you an example when it talks about the veil. When it talks about uh, you know uh, uh, you know how Jesus has torn the veil, and we're going to get into this in Hebrews chapter nine and ten is one of their arguments in this, and it's interesting. Uh, they'll say, well, that's just the flesh. So see, there's an example where I've debunked that for you. You know, they'll talk about that. That's one of the the the, the small things that they'll use. That is a that is a uh, there is symbolism there. That that specifically is symbolic. And they'll point to that to try to debunk every other aspect. And they would go so far as to say, and this is why it matters, and this is why it is a big deal if somebody falls into this. They'll go so far as to say that there is not even an altar in heaven. Now, does anybody right away understand why that's a big deal? What is on the altar? The The blood. Now, do you see why that matters drastically? And this actually is a bigger deal that people would fall into. Now, what are you bought by or what are you saved by? The blood of Jesus Christ, right? So, the Old Covenant was, was literally sealed with blood. Obviously, there was literal blood that was, that was sprinkled, right? That was, the, that was the institution of the Old Covenant when it actually came into play. That's what Hebrews 10 tells us. So, if we look at the New Covenant, we're told very clearly in Hebrews chapter number 9 that a covenant... By necessity, a testament, there must, be, you know, uh, there must be the death of the testator. And that death of the testator, there requires blood. So we'll get into that a little bit more. I don't want to get ahead of us in chapter number 8, but it's an interesting subject. But notice here, this is what I wanted to talk about. This debunks that view. So notice that he shows him the pattern. Think about this. Notice that he shows him the pattern in the mouth. And what is he showing him? He says that this was just a picture or a shadow of the heavenly things. So the picture's not what's in heaven. The picture's actually what's on earth. I want you to notice that. And what it does is what's symbolic is, are the things that were on earth. The earthly tabernacle and the earthly sanctuary was the symbolism. And it actually symbolized what was in heaven. So when you look at what the picture is, it's not what's in heaven. The picture is actually what's in earth. And not only that, notice that he showed it to him. And he said, hey, I want you to make it according to this. So whatever is, is, is on earth, it looks like, or whatever, I'm sorry, whatever is on heaven or in heaven, it looks like what is on earth. So it's based on that exact type of style. And of course, yes, is there symbolism? Yes. But just like anything, you can take it way too far to where it's like, oh, it's all symbolic. The whole book, is there symbolism in the book of Revelation? Yes. But is the whole entire book just a book of poetry and symbolism like the Church of Christ teaches? No. Just because there is some symbolism when it comes to this particular subject doesn't mean that all of it is symbolic. So, he actually, number one, the picture is what's on earth, not what's in heaven, number one. And then number two, he actually showed it to him and he said, make it according to that pattern. And he got to see it and look at it. So those are two really good points that can debunk that view and we'll get into that more so in the next chapter, Hebrews chapter number nine. Look there at verse number six, it says this, but now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. Now why is his ministry better? because his specific ministry is to do the work of the New Covenant as opposed to the Old Covenant. So if we look at the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Bible's telling us right now that the New Covenant is better so which ministry would you rather have? Would you rather, you know, work on, work for or work on, you know, the inferior covenant or the superior covenant? Of course the superior covenant, the better covenant. So it's saying that he has a better ministry because he works for or he is the the laborer if you will, the mediator it says specifically of the new covenant which is established upon better pro- uh, promises. We'll read verse number um, 7. We'll read actually verse number 7. We'll go ahead and read the the rest of the chapter, because verse number 7 through 13 is basically talking about one passage from Jeremiah 31. So we're going to go ahead and read 7 through 13. We'll come back and kind of pick things apart here uh, in this verse by verse. Verse 7 says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the old covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws... (coughs) Excuse me. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more." In that he saith, so this is the only part that's not the quote from Jeremiah 31. In that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Now verse number uh, 8 all the way through verse number 12 actually is the quotation from Jeremiah 31. So if you have your bulletin go ahead and turn to Jeremiah chapter number 31 and slide your bulletin in there because we're gonna go back and forth from Jeremiah chapter number 31 A few different times here. Jeremiah chapter number 31. Just compare the scripture and learn some more from it. It's Jeremiah chapter 31 verse number 31. Notice there in verse number 7 he begins. He says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. And then he explains more about that because someone, someone and some people do say like, yeah, that there, are, there were issues with the old covenant itself, but the problem wasn't with the old co- covenant. There's nothing wrong with God's law. And, th- and this, these arguments come from people that want to omit some of God's law today, right? We only omit what God tells us to omit. We, we still practice all the same things that he, he told us to practice and he hasn't, you know, uh, 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 voided in the New Testament we allow him to tell us you know what is void now at this time you know there were some things that were meant to be symbolic there were some things you know that were ritualistic that we no longer practice today but some people they just want to completely toss out the whole Old Testament the whole Old covenant and they'll they'll say that there were problems with the Old Testament there were problems with the Old Covenant well that's a misunderstanding of verse number seven because verse number 8 explains verse 7 it says for finding fault with them So the fault is not with the law itself, the fault was with the nation of Israel. And it was that they weren't able to keep the covenant. They were not able to keep the law. Obviously they were a stiff-necked people. And verse number 8, it goes on, it says, For finding fault with them, he saith. Now, here's where the quote begins. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It goes on in verse number 9, he gives details. Now, this is a quote, this is the quote from Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one. He gives details in the Old Testament about What the covenant is going to be and how it's going to be. That's interesting. Look at verse 9. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. So we're told that this covenant is going to be different than the old covenant. That there's going to be a difference from this covenant, the new covenant, and the Old Covenant. He said it's not going to be according to the Old Covenant. And he mentions, you know, when I led them out of Egypt, of course, when they went to Mount Sinai and, and, and Moses received the commandments and received the covenant from the Lord at that time, and they went into an agreement and said, you know, we will be you know, the people of God, amen, and they agreed to it, right? They entered into that covenant with the Lord. The blood was sprinkled. He said it's not the same as that. There are differences, and I want to look at some of those differences. Another thing I want you to notice, and this is for the Zionists we are kind of speaking of this before the services. Notice what it says at the end of verse number nine. It says, because they continued not in my covenant and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. That is a powerful verse that teaches that the nation of Israel and those that are, you know, of that exact and specific nation are not God's chosen people anymore. You know what God thinks of, you know, a way to summarize the way that he views the nation of Israel? He doesn't regard them. What does that mean he, you know he doesn't think about them he doesn't consider them in the sense of being his people in that sense of course he wants them to be saved. But they have, in in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant, they had special privileges. They were treated better, right? So in that sense of that Old Covenant, they don't get that treatment anymore. That's what it means. I'm not going to regard you the same way. I'm not going to regard you in the way that I regarded you under the Old Covenant any longer. And you know, all the Zionists today, of course, those that worship the nation of Israel, they they would disagree with this. They would say that that covenant still stands. God said that when they broke the covenant, number one, that proves... That since the covenant's been broken, that there has been a separation or a division. It's not still around today. Because they say, oh, it's an eternal covenant. No, he says they broke it. But think about this. As a result of the nation of Israel breaking that covenant, he says, I regarded them not. You know, so Zionists will try to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, they were disobedient, but they were led back in and all of that. What's the next point? After the Old covenants broken and He regards them not, what what happens after that? This is the important part. He establishes a new covenant. So you know what they need in order to be God's people and in order to be regarded? They need to be in that new covenant. That's the next step. Now this is a major problem for Judaism as well. A major problem and I want you to remember this and this is the purpose of the book of Hebrews and think about this when you do your own personal study and your own personal reading in the book of Hebrews. He's writing to Jews, he's writing to people, and the whole time he's tying in the Old Testament with all of the New Testament teachings. Why? What's the reason? Because, well number one obviously, they are familiar with those scriptures, but you can tell he's trying to persuade them throughout the entire book, throughout the entire epistle of Hebrews, he's trying to persuade them that this is the true religion of the Old Covenant. And I want you to go back to Hebrews 7. I don't know if you remember this or not, but remember Hebrews chapter number 7. Look at verse number 11. It says this, If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? So what he's doing is he's rationalizing with them. and He he just quoted a verse from the Old Testament to the Hebrews and the Jews at that time they were all about Moses the old covenant the law the tabernacle all of that the Levitical priesthood and the Jews were constantly and repeatedly trying to accuse the Christians and all of them and Paul and all of them for trying to destroy the law destroy the temple destroy the covenant just do away with their you know religion and all of that right that's what they were trying to they were constantly attacking the Christians for doing right here in verse number 11 what Paul's trying to show them is even the Old Testament prophesied that there was going to be a priest that came that was not of the Levitical priesthood. So he's trying to show them from their own scriptures, right, that they claim that these are their scriptures, that if you believe the Old Testament then you must believe that there is another priest that's coming and it is the Messiah. And he's not of the Levitical priesthood because we know that he's coming of the seed of David. So he's showing them from the Old Testament that this is actually the fulfillment of the Old Testament of what we now see in the New Testament, in the New Covenant. That's the exact same thing that he's doing here in Hebrews chapter number 8. He's showing them that this was prophesied of in the Old Testament. You know one thing you never hear Jews talking about is the New Covenant. Because you know, we have New Testament scriptures here, right? This is the New Testament. This is the New Covenant. The Jews claim that they believe, you know, what we refer to as the Old Testament, the Old Covenants, they're, they're you know, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, right? They, cl- they claim that they believe that. They have the book of Jeremiah, if you're aware of this. In the Hebrew Bible, they have the book of Jeremiah. And like we're going to look at right now, in their supposed, you know, scriptures, it is scripture, but it's not theirs, because they don't believe it. In the scriptures of the Old Testament, it prophesied of a new covenant that God was going to make. But you know what they don't have? Is they don't have any new covenant. They don't believe that anything changed. And what Paul was doing here when he was writing to the Hebrews was telling them that hey, this is the new covenant that was prophesied. Why would you be surprised? This is actually this actually had to. It necessitated, it was necessary that it had to take place. If you believe that the Old Testament's true, the Old Testament scriptures are true, then this had to eventually happen. If the Old Testament is true, then there must be a New Covenant eventually. But why do the Jews never talk about that? Why do they never bring that up? And they actually, they'll try to criticize the New Covenant, the New Testament. It's like, supposedly, you know, you believe Jeremiah, right? He was a true prophet? Well, he prophesied of this to come. It proves that Christianity is the true religion and that Judaism is false. That's what this proves. Go to Jeremiah chapter number 31. Jeremiah chapter number 31, <clears throat> verse number 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husbandman unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant of that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, And every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. And it says this, For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So we learn a bunch of things about what the New Covenant, according to the Old Testament, is going to be. You know what's going to happen to it? It's going to be different than the the Old Covenant. It's not going to be the same than the Old Covenant. Now is the New Covenant and the Old Covenant different? What we've received in the New Testament scriptures, they're very different, isn't it? Do you know one of the things about the New Testament that took place in one of the New Covenant, or the New Covenant that took place that's different than the Old Covenant? Is that under the New Testament, the Bible teaches that we receive forgiveness. And that we receive mercy from God. And He forgives and washes away all of our sins. That takes place under the New Covenant. So, I want to point out to you what difference he's actually uh, drawing here, what contrast it is, is that it is an eternal covenant. It is an eternal covenant. Look at the very next verse. Look at verse number 35. Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from me, from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me. Or I'm sorry, before me forever. I want you to go over to Jeremiah chapter number thirty-two. I don't have this written down, but I believe I can. I can find it. Um, yeah, look at, um, look, at, look at verse number 36. This new covenant is mentioned and I'm going to show you that that is what this is speaking about. About uh, the new covenant that's made with the nation of Israel and that they will continue to be a nation forever. And it's not A physical nation. It's a spiritual nation. Look at verse 36. And now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel concerning this city, wherefore, whereof ye say, it shall be delivered in the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. Behold, I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in in great wrath. And I will bring them again unto this place and I will cause them to dwell safely. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way I'm sorry, in one way, that they may fear me forever for the good of them and of, the ch- and of their children after them. Verse 40, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, but I will put my fear in their hearts that they shall not depart from me." So I want you to notice that he's telling you that the difference between the old covenant and then this new covenant that I'm going to make is an everlasting covenant. It's an everlasting covenant or it's an eternal covenant that he's going to make with the nation of Israel or with God's people, right? That is why in in Jeremiah 31 and then when it's quoted in Hebrews chapter number 8, Right there, when it talks about it being an eternal covenant or an everlasting covenant, he says, he makes the statement he says, For I will forgive their sins and I will remember their iniquity no more." The whole purpose of it is that he's, giving, he's making a covenant with them where he is going to forgive all of their sins and it is eternal covenant that's going forward from this point on. Now I want to explain something that a lot of people are confused about. So that's, that's very important to know. The old covenant was a temporal covenant. He even tells you that in the Old Testament. He says right there that I'm going to make a eternal covenant with you. What does that tell you about the old covenant? That it's what does that sound like the old covenant's eternal it's not eternal so that covenant is not in existence anymore he regarded them not that's the point it's gone so the new covenant is an eternal covenant that lasts forever so if you become a child of god and you enter into this covenant with the lord in the new covenant how long are you going to be in that covenant eternally because he he will not ever remember your iniquities he's forgiven your iniquities no more now Uh, I'm sorry, he's forgiven your iniquities and won't remember them anymore. Now, here at the end of Hebrews chapter number 8, there's a a couple of verses that people are confused by, and I want to explain them to you. And uh, we'll go go verse by verse. So look at verse number 10. Verse number 10 says this, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and, and write them. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. And I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. Now, I dropped my place, but if you're still in Jeremiah 31, or right around there, you know, we went over a couple of chapters, or one chapter, go back to Jeremiah 31. This is why I wanted you to, why I wanted you to stay there. Look at Jeremiah chapter number 31, and I want you to notice a little bit of a different wording here in verse number 33, it says this, "...but this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel." After those days, saith the Lord. He says, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Now, I want you to notice that the word inward was used right here. You know, if we look at uh, chapter 8, verse 10, it talks about their mind. And he says, and I will write them in their hearts. But specifically, the word inward is used right here. Go to Romans chapter number 7. Let's compare Romans chapter number 7 here. Now, what he's talking about is he's talking about us receiving the Holy Spirit. That takes place... With the new covenant, we receive the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is our righteousness. The Holy Spirit is righteousness, the mind of the Lord. You know that's why He refers to it as the law of God. You know uh, it is the righteousness of the law, if you will. Right? Obviously, God's, God's Spirit is holiness. It is perfect, and that's why if you decide to live a sinful life, this is one of the results of you know uh, uh, salvation. One of the changes that takes place, and how you're a new creature. If you go off and start living a sinful life the Holy Spirit is going to convict you. Because why? Because the law is now written in your mind and it's written in your hearts. Look at Romans chapter number 7. You'll see this same type of language. He says this in Romans seven twenty two, For I delight in the law of God. And then he says this, after the inward word man so notice that same exact language of inward how you know in when the new covenant when we enter into the new covenant he writes the law in our inward parts right he writes it in our minds the inward man and if you skip down notice the word (coughs) it actually uses the word mind look at verse 25 I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God but with the flesh the law of sin. So notice the consistency here. So when it's talking about you know, writing it in our hearts, writing it in our mind, in our inward parts, you know, that's talking about us being made a new creature and receiving the Holy Spirit. And he gives us God's you know, uh, righteousness, which of course, you know, what is God's righteousness? God's righteousness is the law of God. So that is the perfect law of God that's dwelling inside of us, if you will, if you think of it in that way. Go back to Hebrews chapter number 8. Now what is the inward man? You know, it talks about the inward man, it talks about uh, you know the outward man there if you read in its context. Hebrews chapter number I'm sorry, Romans chapter number seven. Of course the inward man is the new creature. That is the Holy Spirit that we have received that is the place, you know, uh, that is the thing that is connected with the new covenant. What what takes place when we uh, we enter into the new covenant? I mean, that is one of the main uh, uh, key attributes of the new covenant. As soon as that took place, you know, we were able to receive the Holy Ghost. That is what he wrote in our minds and wrote in our hearts. He says, and I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. Now, verse number 11 is the other verse that people will be confused about sometimes. Look at verse number 11. <clears throat> And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me from the least to the greatest. I actually had somebody quote this to me that's a dispensationalist, you know, uh, trying to prove that the book of Hebrews did not apply to me. And what he was saying was, Why do you go soul winning then? You know, he was, he was trying to actually make this specific covenant that it's talk, talking about in Hebrews 8, not the covenant that we take part in, but you know how dispensationalism, they'll have like these hybrid covenants that, you have know, the new covenant, like, it kind of applies in this different way to the Jews than it applies to you. And uh, that's basically what he was trying to argue from this passage, and that this new covenant is not necessarily the covenant that I take part in, because this is the new covenant for the Jew. So you have the new covenant for the Gentile, but this is you know this is a little bit different. He's like, why do you go soul winning if you do that? So what he was saying was, you know, why are you going around and teaching you know, every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, know the Lord? If you know, if people, you know, if everybody know, knew him, why are you going soul winning? That was basically you know, how he tried to interpret this passage. Well, I'm going to explain to you this passage because. The whole point of these verses is to contrast the old covenant and the new covenant, and he's telling you how they're different. Remember, old covenant's temporal; new covenant's eternal. Remember, the old covenant—you know—he said, "I regarded them not." He said, "You know, they—they." They, he found fault with them. He said, "It's not according to that covenant." The whole, this whole—you uh, know uh, uh, passage right here of these few verses is to explain to you how the old covenant and the new covenant are different. Now, under the old covenant, who was it made with? Was it made with the whole world? Was it made with all believers in the world? The Old Covenant? Think about it. No. The Old Covenant was specifically made with who? Israel. The nation of Israel. Right? Now let me ask you a question. Just because you were of the nation of Israel and living in the nation of Israel and under this covenant by proxy with your parents if you're living in the the nation and everything and you're there and you're taken to the temple, does that mean that you know the Lord? It does not, does it? That does not mean that you know the Lord. Were there or were there not people that, that you know, took part in the covenant, if you will, in many ways and did not know the Lord? Many, many people, right? I'm sure there were millions of people, the majority, right? They were stiff-necked you know, and they're you know, turning away from the Lord constantly, right? So that did not, so what, what did they have to do? They would have to teach every man their neighbor under that covenant. He's explaining to you this is a difference. So they would have to teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying know the Lord. But he says under this covenant, everyone that takes part in this covenant, he's saying shall know me. Now, who is this given to? Who is this covenant given to? The new covenant. Obviously, we know that it applies to us, but who did it say that it was given to in the Old Testament? Do you remember? It says given to Israel, right? That's what it said. In Jeremiah 31, it clearly states that I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Judah and with the house of Israel, saith the Lord. Do you know what takes place, if we go to the book of Ephesians, it tells you very clearly, you know what takes place at the moment that you get saved? The middle wall of partition is broken down. And before that, you know, you were a foreigner. But now what are you? You're fellow citizens with saint and, and, uh, the saints and of the household of God. What nation are you a part of now? Israel. Israel. So I want you to think about this. In order to be a part of the nation of Israel, what do you have to do? Know the Lord. Do you understand that? So under the new covenant, it's not just made with a people of just, you know, uh, just a nation just randomly with people that may not know the Lord. One of the requirements in order to be or to take part in this covenant is that you must know the Lord. That is actually the requirement in order to, if you're going to, you know, get in or enter into this covenant and be of the house of Israel and be of Judah, guess what you must do? The whole way to get into it, that's the qualification, is you must what? Know the Lord. You must be what? You have to be saved. So that's what it's actually teaching. It's saying this is the difference. Everybody's going to be saved. That's the whole point. Everybody is going to be a child of God of the new covenant that is made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. His whole point is, he starts off. That's what you have to understand. Context is so important. You know, it's it's really important to learn how to interpret the Bible and read read things in context. All these verses are different attributes of the new covenant that are different and more specifically cause it to be superior than the Old Covenant. It's eternal, it's everlasting, Everybody, everybody that's in it is gonna have a forgiveness of sins, they're gonna be in it eternally, and all of them are gonna know the Lord, why? Because to in order to enter into this covenant and in order to be in the house of Israel and, and in, in a part of the house of Judah, you must know the Lord. So that's what that is referring to there when it says, And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. For, watch this, because I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities. Why, well, remember, no more notice that. That everyone that... that you know, is in this covenant, will know him, and they will have their sins forgiven. So you notice that there? It says for, that means because. So people, this verse will kind of bother people. And what is it saying? That all of Israel, people will go to this and try to say that all of Israel will eventually be saved, and that's what it means, all of Israel, every single one, and he'll never have to go. It's ridiculous. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's not what this means. He he explains very clearly that this is a difference between the old covenant and the new covenant. And it's just to avoid so many different things that are very clear that he regarded them not. You know, the old covenant is gone. The new covenant has been made. And the new covenant is available to all, anyone. And uh, that's Israel, Gentile, it doesn't matter. Anybody who believes, you know, they are now entering into this covenant. They have entered into this covenant. It's an eternal covenant that will never end. That's what that's teaching. So um, look at... Uh, verse number... Yeah, we'll go ahead and read verse number 12 one more time. Verse number 12, it says, "...For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more." So notice, in the New Covenant, what happens? You receive, under the New Covenant, you receive forgiveness of sins. Even in the Old Testament Scriptures, in the book of Jeremiah, you can show a Jew, hey, the New Covenant says, that, or the, the Bible teaches, that under the New Covenant, what it, the purpose of it is, so that you can receive forgiveness of sins so that you might receive forgiveness of sins." Um, So, look at verse number 13. Verse number 13 it says, "...in that he saith a new covenant. He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away." So, the wording here, verse number 3 says, "...in that he saith a new covenant." So he's saying, you know, when he he uses that phrase or he uses that verbiage of a new covenant, He says, he hath made the first old. Saying, if you're going to call something new, well that means whatever was there before is now old. That's what he's saying. Now that makes that the old covenant. If this is now the new covenant by his terms, then whatever covenant that was in existence prior is now referred to as the old covenant. That's important to understand why he's saying that because then he says this, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So he's saying, you know, so if that makes the other covenant old, what happens to things that are old? That's his point. What happens to things that are old? They decay and they vanish away. So his whole point is that the old covenant's gone. That's his point. That's what chapter number eight is about. That it's a better covenant and that this is a new covenant. It was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's everlasting. It's been fulfilled. Everything that we have in the New Testament, the New Covenant, perfectly fulfills what was prophesied in the Old Testament. You know what the Jews have today? They have a Messiah that never came. That's what they have. They have a Messiah that never came. They have scores and scores, hundreds of prophecies that were never, fu- never fulfilled. They have a covenant that God never made with them. You know, this new covenant just never came about. You know, the God that they worship, the Old Covenant supposedly that they're, that they're in, and that they, you know, you know, their interpretation of the Scriptures, their religion, which is not at all the Old Testament of, what, you know, of how we believe it and how we view it. Yeah. Totally different religion. It's not G- Judeo-Christian. Judeo-Christianity. That's not at all what it is. It's Christianity. The Old Testament was Christianity. We right. were looking forward to the Christ. That's what they were looking forward to. What is the new covenant about? It's pointing towards the Christ that's coming so that they can receive forgiveness of sins. That's what it is. That's the whole purpose of it. You know what they were seeking? They were seeking peace. They needed the Prince of Peace to come. They were seeking forgiveness of sins and they were wondering how it's going to come. And they knew, hey, a Messiah is going to come one day. A Savior is going to come one day. And they were looking forward to that day when that was going to come. The whole Bible is Christianity. It's pointing towards the new covenant. Amen. That's what it's about. That's what the Bible itself, the whole Bible, is about. If you just take the old covenant, you have nothing. You know, if you take if you take the interpretation of Ju- of, of Judaism, it just falls flat on its face. But when you look in the New Testament scriptures, what you have is is repeatedly the fulfillments of what the Old Testament tells you was going to take place. The Messiah was going to come. He's going to be born here. He was going to do this, he was going to do that, all the prophecies that he fulfilled, you know, taking our iniquities, taking our transgressions upon him, being beaten with stripes. I mean, you could just go down the list. He's born in Bethlehem. He's of the, you know, the seed of Judah, right? I mean, just down the list. He makes a new covenant. He's going to be the high priest. I mean, just over and over and over again. He's like, he's made after the order of Melchizedek. The new covenant is an everlasting covenant. You know, he's going he's to eventually come back. All those fulfillments. I mean, when you know, John writes, he sits down, and he writes to a T the exact same description that the Old Testament prophesied of how he's going to look. You know, just everything is perfectly consistent. Amen. If you don't have the New Covenant, you have nothing. Right. That's, how it, that's how it breaks down. The New Covenant is prophesied of in the Old Covenant. Turn, let's end here, 2 Corinthians 3. And I want to end with this note. I want everybody to understand how great the new covenant is. How great the new covenant is. Let's let's just read this passage. I'm not going to, you know, this isn't our text for the evening, so I just want to read it, let it sink in, and then we'll close for the evening. I want you to look here with me at 2 Corinthians 3, look at verse 6. Who also hath made us able ministers of the new testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. Now, the letter is referring to the law. That's the Old Covenant. The the Spirit is referring to the New Covenant. For the letter killeth, but the Spirit giveth life. Verse 7, But if the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses, for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away, How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather? That means more glorious. For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more doth the ministration of righteousness exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect. By reason of the glory that excelleth. So even that which had so much glory that when Moses came down, he had to cover his face. He was shining so brightly from being in God's presence when he received the old covenant. He said that covenant has no glory compared to this covenant because it excels and exceeds it so much more in glory. That covenant is the covenant or the ministration of death. This covenant and this ministration is the ministration of spirit and of life. That's a temporal covenant. This is an eternal covenant. That covenant, you know, he regards them not today. But you know what? There's a new covenant that they can still enter into and that anyone can enter into. And when you enter into it, you can know the Lord. And you can receive forgiveness of sins and he'll never turn away from you. He's saying, you know what he's saying? The difference between that covenant and this covenant, there'll never come a time where I won't regard you. There'll never come a time when you're not my children. There'll never come a time, Israel, where you're no longer of my nation. That's what he's saying. Amen. When you enter into this covenant, it's an eternal covenant. A covenant that at the moment you receive total forgiveness of sins. You have, you know, your relationship brought back with the Lord, and it's never ending. Amen. And you'll forever know him. You know, the new covenant, we need to uh, uh, you know, um, Sometimes it's good to just kind of reflect upon the things that we have, the things to be grateful for. Think about the new covenant. Think about how great it is to be you know, under the new covenant. Obviously, you know, people were entering into you know, the new covenant as far as receiving the promise of the Messiah in the Old Testament, but they didn't get the benefits that we get today. The clarity that we have today, the Holy Spirit that we get to receive, you know, they didn't have a lot of the things. You know, they looked forward to the cross and were saved in the same way, but they didn't receive the benefits that we receive today. We have the clarity where he's comparing the two covenants for us and explaining. That's the ministration of death. This is the ministra- ministration of life. Be thankful that we have the, the covenant of life. The covenant that just excels in glory so much that even Moses' face shining is nothing compared to this covenant that we have. Amen. I mean, that's, that's something to be grateful for. That's something to be thankful for. We, we today, this is what Hebrews chapter number 8 is about. There's a new covenant. It was prophesied about. And this new covenant is a better covenant. It's an eternal covenant. It's a covenant where we know the Lord and that we receive forgiveness of sins for all of our sins. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, God, we thank you so much for the new covenant. We thank you so much for the eternal promise, the eternal covenant. There'll never come a time when you don't regard us. That we can know the Lord, we thank you so much for the Holy Spirit under this covenant, all the benefits, all the great things that come with it. We thank you for the clarity that when there are false doctrines that are being taught, that you know, there's that the nation of Israel is just eternally going to be your people, and they're never going to be turned away. That there are clear passages like this where you tell us that you don't regard them anymore, and that it vanished away, and that it's gone, it's old, you know, it's not in existence anymore. We just thank you so much, dear Lord, that, uh, that you've, done, you know, you, you've showed us such mercy, dear Lord, and such grace. Uh, we don't deserve it, and that you've made this eternal covenant that will never go away. We thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you so much for our church. Just be with us and bless us. Be with all those that are not feeling well. Uh, uh, and uh, just bless us throughout the rest of the week. And in Jesus Christ's name, amen.